0: Well, if you're a simple-minded conservative like me, names like Ludwig von Mises, Murray Rothbart, uh, and some of these other names, you've probably heard from some of your libertarian friends. Well, we're going to dive in uh, to an incredible podcast where we learn more about the Mises Institute. Who was Ludwig von Mises? What is Mises, um, von Mises libertarianism? Uh, How does that compare to Beltway libertarianism and all these other things? It might sound kind of meh, I'm telling you, it's incredible. Um, you're definitely going to want to tune in. Your hair will be blown back. Then we jump into SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank stuff, um, and he destroys that. And he is though Bishop, the comms director for uh, the Mises Institute. In our behind-the-scenes, we talk about how liberty-minded folks can take on the big government, big corporate uniparty. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture, culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome everyone to 1819 News The Podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this year podcast where we're pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama each and every week. Today I've got an incredible podcast. It is a podcast that should have happened long ago, but in the busyness of life, uh, it just kept getting put off, but I'm really excited um, to to have the comms director, Tho Bishop, of the Mises Institute coming on to discuss uh, an assortment of things, who he is, what is the Mises Institute, what is von Mises libertarianism. Uh, we're going to dive into Silicon Valley Bank, how would a libertarian fix it, and uh, our behind-the-scenes content is... How can liberty minded folks fight back against the big corporate, big, big corporate, big government uniparty? That's a huge problem in Alabama. Big, big, big business and big government is the same thing here. Uh, How can we fight back? Um, And so, before we jump into all that, though, I got to ask you guys to join the fight. I always tell you week after week, we need you guys to join the fight. What does that mean? Well, if you get, we are a nonprofit news entity. We are independent news and we need you guys to support independent journalism, nonprofit journalism. We are doing the hard work of uh, beating the pavement, pressing the flesh plus words, pressing the flesh, originating real news stories, um, not just rewriting press releases and things like that so that you guys are informed. Uh, We are investigating and we're celebrating the things about the state that are good, true and beautiful. And we need your help to do it. Uh, Gifts start as little as $5 a month. And with that, you get cool merch behind the scenes content and all that. So, and if not one more reason to join the fight, if we've been kicked off of YouTube by the Gestapo, they told us no more. And if you're a conservative podcast and you haven't been kicked off of YouTube, what are you even doing? Uh, Or at least had some run-ins with the Gestapo. Anyway, some people have better luck evading the Gestapo than I. Um, So Either way. So there's all that. Um, so yeah, please join the fight. And now without further ado, we will jump into the content. So Mr. Tho Bishop, the comms director of the Mises Institute, which is here in Alabama. A lot of people don't, I think, really know that, that this amazing libertarian think tank is right here in the heart of Dixie. So Tho, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of 1819. Will Blakely is one of my favorite journalists out there. So it's a great honor to be joining
0: you guys. Awesome. No, we're, we're pumped. Um, I've been trying to figure out just in the the grand scheme of things, ways for us to, to kind of, you know, work alongside each other. I think there's a lot of commonality between our visions and, and what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And, um, I just, I think anytime there's that much similarity in mission, maybe this is it. This is, this is, uh, this is how it starts though, right here. You never know. I'm excited to be a part of it. <laughs> All right. So big thing. We're, we're big on story here. I, I, you know, pie charts, data graphs, that's all fine. Um, we love stories and, and we want to know about people. So tell us your story. Who are you? How, you know, where were you born? Tell us about your parents, where you grew up. How did you become the comms director of the Mises Institute?
1: Well, I'm a proud Florida man down here in the Panhandle, Panama city beach. Um, and I, I'm a, college dropout that now gets to work with a whole bunch of economic PhDs and promote their work, which is uh, pretty cool on my end. I've, I've enjoyed every, every bit of it. Um, my my background's interesting. I actually have uh, some, some roots in Alabama um, from my father. Um, he was a Georgia boy, but uh, he was a, a political operative if you will, back in the day. Yeah. Um, and he did a lot of work within Alabama politics. Uh, he had a testify at Guy Hunt's trial back in the day. I think met, met him in jail a few times. Uh, wow. Under the fun reign of uh, gov- Alabama governors, a little bit of trouble, uh, seemed to, every other cycle or so. And I actually uh, got my work, um, the, the way I got to the Institute, uh, was working for Spencer Backus, a congressman from Birmingham. Yeah. And the way that came about is that, uh, you know, I, you know, after after uh, I dropped out of college, I became very interested in economics, which I don't know if it would have happened if I was in an economics classroom in most of the universities right now. Um, but really, I was someone who was always interested in, in politics, uh, liked arguing perhaps too much. Um, but after the financial crisis, uh, I hated it because I had nothing intelligent to say, and Not, nothing drove me crazier than this entire meltdown of the global economy. And you know, it's something that I never particularly had interest in. But all of a sudden, I realized that if I was going to try to navigate to, to be a thoughtful individual in that world, I needed to, to figure out this whole economics thing. Yeah, And so I, I read broadly. I read uh, you know, uh, Paul Krugman's book. I, I read Milton Friedman. But really, it was this Austrian school, um, which it, it's called Austrian because Ludwig von Mises, the guy we're named after, he was a, a professor at the University of Vienna. Um, back before World War II, but for the most part, the Austrian school relocated to the U.S. after World War II. Uh, Mises was a capitalist and a Jew, and you know Hitler did not like that much um, either of those. Yeah. And so, it, it has been a very American-based uh, economic philosophy uh, ever since then. Um, and I, I discovered the Mises Institute, started reading everything I could get my hand I- on. Um, and so when we had, um, you know, I, I was able to have a conversation with Congressman Bacchus when he took over as Financial Services Committee chairman uh, back after the Tea Party revolution in the 2010 election. And I started you know, talking about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the consequences of the bailouts. And, you know, well, these Austrians were actually predicting this crisis that no one seemed to understand at the time. No one saw it coming. And from that, I was able to actually get a job up in D.C., made some friends with Ron Paul's staff. Um, Jeff Dice, who's the current president of the Mises Institute, um, he was chief of staff for Ron at the time. So it's because of Congressman Spencer Backus that I uh, was able to get that opportunity in D.C. Um, after, you know, after a few years, I left D.C., had enough time of uh, you know, everyone's first question being, what do you do? And immediately turning their backs if you didn't have the right answer to that. Um, came back down here to the south um, and have been able to work with the Mises Institute since 2015. Uh, spent a lot of time, lived in Auburn, Alabama for six, seven years. Um, and so it, it was because of that connection with uh, with Spencer Backus that I was here in the first place. Not exactly an Austrian in his own right, but you know he was yeah. a nice guy. And uh, so that's that was kind of my my breakthrough in there. And I, what I love about the institute is that we we very much have that sense of mission and kind of heroism from many of the scholars. They're not simply intelligent people, but they were very heroic figures. They they never bowed down. Um, they they never uh, erred from stating the truth, even when it made them unpopular. And so there's something about that spirit coupled with uh, the way that economics teaches you the, a, a fundamental truth, which is who is ripping us off. Yeah. And that's why government schools don't do a good job of teaching it. It's why we <laughs> need people to take that same initiative on their own right to educate themselves. And that's what we try to do with the Institute and all of our content.
0: Wow, that's it. Well, um, what about a little bit more um, on the history of the, the Institute? Um, maybe even Ludwig von Mises himself. Um kind of bring us up to speed on on any of that.
1: Sure. Well, what's interesting about Austrian economics is that it's not simply say a a policy portfolio of things that you know politicians should do. Um it, it is often connected with libertarianism, uh, much in the same way that the work of like Milton Friedman is. Both are seen as politically libertarian economists. Um but the viewpoints of Ludwig von Mises and one of his great students Murray Rothbard and that entire tradition it is methodologically very different than um, the Chicago schools, what they call Milton Friedman's sort of a group of thinking there. Yeah. And it really is grounded into methodology itself. And so the methodology was founded by a mentor of Ludwig von Mises, was a guy named Carl Menger, um, who was very interesting. He was not kind of an ivory tower economist you know, in a, in a German university. He was instead sort of like a, the equivalent, of like a Wall Street Journal reporter back in the day. Yeah. And he realized that the theoretical framework out there, the classical school and how prices operate, really didn't have a lot of overlap with the real world. And so Austrian economics, it's, it's not mathematical, which makes it very different than modern mainstream economists, where you have to have a background in you know, high, high uh, statistics. And um, now you have to really do your own coding for all these f- fancy equations. It's very deductive. It's very logic based. And so that profound methodological change, um, which which used to be very in vogue, it used used to be the fashionable, more fashionable way, at least in technique, um, not necessarily all the conclusions there, that used to be the classical way of doing economics. There was a complete revolution in the 1930s where the work of John Maynard Keynes, who was a a big admirer of uh, fascist style economics, um, he he very much called for a greater role of the government um, to overcome what he saw as the inherent instability of free markets and things like that, um, the sort of ideologies that gave us the Fed and the progressive era, increasing regulation, more taxation, inflation, like we're dealing with right now, um, that became the in-demand school of economics. And so Ludwig von Mises, who was a very accomplished scholar, he was actually a World War I veteran in his own right. Um, there's a great story where he was actually given the ability to retreat to sort of the comforts of a, uh, a- academic war council after Uh, surviving some of the most treacherous uh, terrain as an artillery commander, um, fighting fighting Russians at the time. Um, All he had to do was kind of go along with whatever the government told him that he was supposed to believe, and he refused to do it. They sent him back out in the front lines. He thought he was going to die because he refused to give up his beliefs. And it was that same sort of tenacity that had him flee uh, Europe. They actually tried to assassinate him in Switzerland when he was there for a few years writing some books, Um, came to the United States, and he found an America where his views were not allowed. Um, FDR's America would not allow him to really teach with a paid position um, at a university. Um, he was had to rely upon uh, donor money to, to have a, a small class at New York University. And so his his ideology, his views, which I think are very important right now in this for, sort of financial crisis, he uh, wrote incredible books on not just money, but money and credit and the way that credit creates this instability within financial systems. Um, that is is kind of his pioneering work, along with great works on, on liberty and the, the virtues of political decentralization, and so the way that we, you know, came from from Vienna, Austria to Auburn, Alabama was a man named Lou Rockwell, who was able to work as an editor uh, late in Ludwig von Mises's life, brought back into publishing some of Mises's works, uh, working for a publishing outfit called Arlington Press or Arlington House, if you, uh, excuse me, and he decided, well, the ideas of Ludwig von Mises were kind of being ignored within this broader libertarian movement. Um, one of least of the students was F.A. Hayek, um, who became very celebrated. He was kind of seen as a little more moderate, if you will, a little more compromising on some of these sort of things. Um, he was teaching at the University of Chicago, though Milton Friedman wouldn't let him teach economics either. He didn't like his, his economics either. And so there's a lot of push within D.C. libertarian circles to promote the work of F.A. Hayek to be a little bit more moderate on certain issues, particularly when it came to, to money and banking. And so Lou sought upon himself to Take up the mantle of being a champion of Mises's ideas um, and he developed the Mises Institute in the 80s um, at, at the explicit uh, wish uh, going against the wishes of the Koch brothers and all the money they had and a lot of influence there he started it it started up with a DC office and an office in California it eventually came to Auburn uh, because of a judge John Denson um, who was a big Auburn uh, donor at the time um, they had a little bit of a political falling out with the campus at Auburn, I, I know that tends to happen sometimes over there. Um, though the institute did fund their PhD program for a long period of time, and we have had a lot of great scholars with Auburn PhDs because of that time. They were actually had their office; it was a little office right next to Sugar Jordan Stadium. Um, it relocated in the 90s, right across the street, right next to Mama Goldberg's, which is another Auburn classic I know. And so we have, I think, some of the best real estate in in the fine city of Auburn, Alabama. We were right across, we we're in the shadow of Sugar Jordan. We actually rent out our parking spaces during game day. It's a great place to tailgate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how the, the the Mises Institute came from you know, Austria, Vienna and the Hungarian Empire all the way over to, universe, uh, to, to the United States and within Alabama itself. And, again, it's, it's a privilege to, to be able to work for an organization like this with such great people. Uh, Lou Rockwell is a, is a personal hero of mine. Um, Jeff Dice, again, former chief of staff, Ron Paul. Um, Ron himself was one of the founding members of the Institute. Um, we're surrounded by men of great character. Uh, men, uh, uh, people that work in it, understand the importance, we, we really have the, one of the Amis's big understandings was that civilization is shaped by the ideas shaping society, and so we all kind of see that when we work every day, that it's it's our job, and I know it motivates you at 1819, to pro- put forward the ideas of liberty, because it's, ultimately, we, we must begin with ideological change, if we're going to rein back the tyranny um, that, that we all suffer from right now.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And that's one of the reasons we like story hearing that story. I didn't know hardly any of that. Um, so that's, that's awesome. How would you say what, what distinguishes, you know, maybe Beltway Koch brother Friedman libertarianism and von Mises libertarianism, are there certain principles that just jump out or.
1: Well, if if you see some of the the biggest names within sort of DC libertarianism today, and I, I think not only of Cato, which I think Cato has kind of become largely Almost irrelevant, if you will. Particularly after Trump, um, they really burned a lot of capital in D.C. You know, trying to to show how how much more respectable they were you know, the Donald Trump. Which, of course, you know, libertarian ideas in D.C. are never going to be popular. And trying to be popular through that crowd of the elites is a self defeating mechanism. Yeah. And so that leads to an institute that really just stands for you know drug legalization, promoting sex work, um, yeah. and then open borders. And, and so what I think you really have fundamentally to, to be to be more uh, charitable. Um, Nick Gillespie, who's one of the big big faces of Reason, he's always wearing his, his you know leather jacket, looks so cool, right? He he kind of views libertarianism fundamentally in his own words as a philosophy of promoting alternative lifestyles. It, it's almost this sort of um, uh, liberation ideology that you know every choice that we make in our life should be it's, it's kind of liberalism in in a, a a certain sense taken into its its greatest extreme that all of the relationships that we have should be based off of our own our own voluntary voluntary choices that we don't have obligation to family or to tradition or to our church and things like that. And that ultimately the ideal society is one where it's made up of nothing but voluntary economic relationships, which is why they promote some of those things I just mentioned. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, it's very atomiz- atomizing. I think as the individual, it, it breaks down, I think, a lot of the institutions within civil society that are necessary. Economics is not enough for a civilization. And, and Louis von Mises certainly understood that. And so I think by contrast, Misesian libertarianism or Mises Institute libertarianism or, or Auburn libertarianism, sometimes it's derisively referred by some of these uh, Beltway types. Um, what what we kind of see is is what's important is Fighting the state from what we might call natural hierarchy, every individual you're born into a family, that family is a part of a culture. It's a part of a tradition. Um, What we need in our society is not simply economic transactions as being the only governing force, but it's the respect that you have for your neighbor. It's social trust. It's common bonds. And that if you have society that is not reliant upon the state and policing power to keep order, but rather it's by common trust. Common respect, common values, common language, which was a big aspect of Mises as someone who was born in a very multicultural world of you know, the Hungarian Empire with all sorts of ethnicities and nationalities and things like that. He saw that really political lines were best kind of formed along language, uh, religion, those, those underlying, those sort of fundamental relationships. And so there's this contrast, there's this conflict, as you will. So the Mises Institute libertarians tend to be more. Uh, Skeptical of open borders, which is always a political agenda rather than, you know, arbitrary lines in the map. Right. You you don't without the state kind of intervening in things whether it's bombing people overseas or or, um, uh, you know, pushing drug wars or things like that, creating disorder that pushes people away from generational ties um, that instead it's, it's better to rein in the disorder that the state creates and allow for natural order. Um, to to exist and, and bloom from that. And you're always going to have people within your community that people look to, people that are are natural elites, genuine leaders, people that have proved themselves in business or in the church or in the community. They're philanthropists and things like that. The respect they have doesn't come from the ballot box. So it's a democracy. It doesn't come from political power. It comes from the good deeds they do. It comes from merit. And so while you know, so, so that is the difference there, both of us have anti-state views. I would argue that one ends up leading to the necessity of a bigger state um, over time. Um, both of us are skeptical of the state itself. One, though, has a lot more respect for religion, for those cultural ties, for those more fundamental connections, while the others so- see those as perhaps a little bit outdated, a little archaic, and would much rather have a more culturally progressive order. And I think those two are in conflict. It leads to a lot of libertarian infighting, which libertarians are good at in their own right. But I think that ultimately is the intellectual dynamic that leads to some of that friction and it's why often we we want not be associated with each other and i'm perfectly okay with that
0: wow that's extremely helpful because you know um i um am friends with lots of libertarians and uh it's even interesting you know because you think oh he says he's a little and it's probably how you guys feel about us conservatives you know i say conservative you know i'm thinking you know um pat buchanan you know they're thinking you know k ivy you know and it's like well two different things here guys so uh it's good to get down to the nitty-gritty and see really what people mean and you know i think um libertarians i always joke with craig who's another one of our libertarian reporters uh, who's a big mises institute fan is uh i always give him a hard time and say yeah you libertarians have a a branding problem because anytime someone says libertarian you think of some lecherous long-haired guy with chest hair sticking out of his Hawaiian shirt and he's got a machine gun and a couple of half-naked chicks on his side while he's smoking his weed and that's the the picture you get you know when when you hear libertarian and it's funny and and anyway I won't go much farther into that but um you know the more you dive into it um you know a lot of people doing a lot of really great work uh are people that are connected to you guys and is there and I got to jump to a commercial break real quick but um maybe hit this really quickly there's a uh, a Mises Caucus, and that is not you guys, correct? That's something different.
1: Correct. That, that's with the LP, and okay. I I, 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 have, I have little interest in being with the with the LP because a lot of them are the sort of libertarians that you are. Some good people. Yeah. I'm not trying to yeah. disperse them too much, but yes, that, that that is a a libertarian caucus that was sort of trying to take back that party from some of the f- types of folks that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but 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 the, the the value of the libertarian party is itself, uh, I, I think, an open question. Let's just say amongst some of our Mises crowd.
0: Yeah, we'll jump into that on in our behind the scenes because I think that matters. Okay, well, great. We're going to hit a break and uh, hear a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back.
2: Hey, y'all. It's Allison Sinclair with Alabama Unfiltered. A lot of people ask me, what can I do to actually make a difference in D.C. and in my state government? and One of the most effective things you can do is write an old school letter to your elected officials. It seems super simple, but a written through the mail letter gets their attention much more than an email or a phone call. I use the Quick Letter app from my phone to write letters and it makes it so easy to write all of my representatives in DC and in our state a real letter in a matter of minutes. And so Quick Letter automatically determines your representatives and their mailing addresses. You write or dictate a letter on your phone and tap the name of every representative you want to receive that letter. And a quick letter handles the delivery address, the return address, the greeting, the closing, the signature, the printing, stuffing, stamping, and placing your letter in the U.S. mail. Your governor, attorney general, state legislators, your U.S. senators, and congressmen need to hear from you. And it doesn't have to be elaborate. Actually, a brief, simple letter usually has the most impact. Send a quick letter today and every day. Go to quickletter.com. That's K-W-I-K, quickletter.com, or download the Quick Letter app today. All
0: right, guys, welcome back. Thank you much for thank you very much for sticking around after the commercial break. And before we jump back into the content, I just want to reemphasize the importance of what our sponsor, Jim Hicks, has done with Quick Letter, K-W-I-K, Letter, uh, an app that you can download to your phone and you can write or dictate out a letter uh, that will be mailed by them to your representative so they can hear your voice. We are now in a legislative session in the state. There's so much going on, everything from school choice to abortion uh, to trying to figure out what the heck is going on with our state health officer that's appointed by uh, Massa, which is a lobbying group. I mean, the fact that there's a an association, basically a, a lobbying group, a special interest group that appoints the guy that told us we all had to wear masks and get vaccinated it's nuts right so there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done it's our government it's not our representative's government it, it's our government and so we need to make our voices heard jim hicks with this quick letter app has made it very easy for you guys to do that so make sure uh your representatives know what you think about all the things that you're going on uh, that are going on in the government that you're learning about in 1819 news all right <clears throat> well though let's get back to it There is an obvious economic crisis that's looming right now that has a a lot of people hot under the collar, and there's a lot of opinions flying. Um, This podcast is going to be posted a week afterwards, so hopefully it won't be obsolete by the time we get to it. But Silicon Valley Bank, give us kind of the history of what you think is going on there and how a libertarian-minded or liberty-minded person would would avoid that altogether or how to fix the situation now.
1: Well, I, I do think that whilst perhaps the, the immediate concern over a, a bank crisis um, probably has been averted because of the incredible actions by DC, the fundamental problems are not being addressed at all. And I think what's important is, and this is kind of one of the difficulties we have in communicating economic ideas, is that the problems we have today are not the byproduct of you know a month ago or or even you know after Biden's so-called election. Um, these, these are a decade plus. Uh, it's, it's an instability and, and really longer than that if you want to look at the, the foundations of that system it's baked into the modern financial system it is fundamentally unstable at its core um this is the, the fractional reserve banking system that we have right now and it's something that has been saturated with risk moral hazard and all this goes back into the extreme measures the federal reserve with bernanke followed by yellen as a response to 2008 in the financial crisis and the problem is is that okay you know, they, they they dealt with a, a housing bubble that the Federal reserve created by flooding the market the financial markets of liquidity um, they did you know multiple rounds of quantitative easing as a way of, of you know, again, putting that liquidity within the banks um they actually succeeded in creating a two-tier banking system which is kind of one of the problems we have right now you had the too big to fail banks um, significantly important financial institutions CIFIS, as they called which had uh, extra degree of, of regulatory scrutiny and things like that um, but because of that they kind of had that stamp of approval of being super safe havens um, because the government was going to tightly watch all that sort of stuff. Now, then we have all these regional banks out there um, that are, are dealing struggling right now with the actions the Federal Reserve under Jerome Powell has taken over the last year and a half. with This incredible rise in interest rates. Now, I, I have no problem with that policy. I, I think we, we, it was necessary to raise interest rates. Um, they. they should not have been brought down as certainly should not have been as low for as long as they did they should not have pivoted in 2018 where the economy was strengthening under uh, because of some of the policies of the trump administration um that was a mistake there donald trump wanted low interest rates because he needed low, low interest rates were good for the market and the market was good for the election season uh coming come 2020. um but the problem is is that you have all these banks that they did not have these rate hikes priced in the fed didn't have these rates priced in um, years ago, I mean, no one would have thought this was possible to have interest rates, you know, nearing six percent. Um, and so that's created an incredible amount of strain on these institutions. And this is why Silicon Valley Bank as a single bank, though a, a large one, um, be, because of its connections with big tech. Big tech itself has its own unique brand of problems as a consequence of this period of super low interest rates. Because when, when all this money is, is created, this liquidity is bumped in the banking system. It doesn't hit all industries equally, right? It it tends to just start, uh, the people that benefit the most are the ones that are closest to political power. Great for financial services industries, great for Wall Street, great, never a bad thing for D.C. Um, A lot of that then big tech was one of those big hubs that benefited tremendously from VCs and all this money, all this cheap money pumping in. So you have right now is big tech as a sector that many of these companies, I mean, household names, Uber, Airbnb, Etsy, yeah, you know, numbers of other brands have never been profitable in their existence. They, they've been go, able to go along is to they keep they, they kept refinancing debt at these very very low levels. They're addicted. They're, they, they, their, their business model necessitates this cheap debt. As these interest rates go up, um, they have to change the way they're allocating their resources. Uh, a lot of these companies were drawing down their bank reserves. Um, for a variety of costs, employees and things like that. They couldn't simply have it parked in the bank. People started noticing that. That led to the specific problem of Silicon Valley Bank. The problem is is that every other regional bank is also unstable. There's tons of underperforming uh, assets out there with commercial real estate, all sorts of stuff. And so the reason why the Fed acted, breaking all of its rules with the way that the uh, the, basically new FDIC limits on, on all depositors, um creating a window where they're now ex- taking collateral at par, which means if you have a, a lot of these mortgage-backed securities, for example, that the federal reserve or that these banks bought when housing prices were were up. Um, you know here in Florida, they're they're still pretty well up. I can tell you that right now, but a lot of these areas of the country, those mortgages are now underwater based off the way that they originally that they originated. Banks are now able to turn in these assets. For at par value. So they're, they're turning in an asset now worth 80 cents and they're getting a dollar, the dollar that they paid for. Um, this is unprecedented. It goes against the golden rule of emergency finance. And William Baggett is a famous Victorian, uh, central banker from, from London. Um, his rule was, okay, in a time of crisis, lend freely, but do it with good collateral at a penalty rate. We're not doing that at all. We're, we're bailing out everyone right now. All firms are too big to fail now, because they have a crisis of confidence. Social media plays a role. I think in that as well. It's, we've, we've seen whether it's uh, the game stock or uh, uh, gamestop stock, whether it's AMC. we've seen the way that you have these sort of interesting financial mobs um, that social media can coordinate. Um, the regulators are terrified, and the, the really dangerous thing is that within this environment, what I'm concerned about is a continual consolidation of money and banking going on right now. And that we are essentially nationalizing the banking system, and creating what has become the number one tool the regime has used both domestically and abroad, which is the weaponization of the dollar. We've seen it play out with the way that um, you know banking information was used to track down January six protesters. We've seen the way that conservatives have been debanked. Um, we've seen attacks on the gun industry and other industries uh, using access to your bank. All of this, again, is a major, major weapon. Which the authorities at B are trying to double down with with central bank digital currency, which would basically allow Big Brother to track everything to do. So that is what is being done right now. The libertarian response to this, first and foremost, is we have to understand, you know, Thomas Sowell's old saying, right? There are no solutions. There are always there are only trade-offs. There is no way that we can have a soft landing with the financial system that we have right now. Um, again, we, our federal authorities they you know, think of. Think of it as as pumping a broken body full of painkillers and having to walk around for 10 years is essentially (laughs) where our financial system is right now. Very scary thought. Um, The biggest benefit America has is that we're not alone in this. Our bad ideas, our best weapon in the globe right now is the bad ideas you learn in Ivy League universities are now being transplanted all around the world. Most central bankers kind of, you you, you play six degrees of Kevin Bacon, which is about every central banker with where they got their ideas. So everyone else is doing the same bad stuff that we, we, we ultimately there's going to have to be a correction and so right now federal authorities are having to decide between saving the dollar which everyone everyone that holds a dollar pays that price or it has, has a vested interest in, in trying to get the dollar to the in this inflationary environment we have right now or save the banking system and ultimately we're going to need some failures from the banking system we're going to need to have a realignment within the financial system there have been attempts to try to create more stable Environments. I, I think you're going to see in the next couple of years a, a tremendous demand for security, financial security. Um, some people have been trying to create what are called full reserve banks that rely upon this unstable fractional reserve system, where you know you, you never have all the banks in the vault or all the money in the vault that you need for if all your depositors come in and withdraw. Right. That's that's not the way banking has worked in a very long time. Um, Caitlin Long, who is a, a former Wall Street banker, a, a fan of the Mises Institute. She's been start, trying to start a, a full reserve bank in Wyoming um, using Bitcoin and some other interesting stuff there. The Federal Reserve will not let her get a bank license. They will not give her access to sort of the, the, the tools the Fed provides banks. VC has essentially made this uh, full reserve banking system impossible to achieve. They are depriving people of the option of stability in this. Um, you're, you're also seeing that the, the a move right now to debank all crypto. I think the Signature Bank, which funny enough, Barney Frank of Dodd-Frank fame, um, you know, was was the director of when it failed. Um, this entire dynamic is again showing the failure of the Dodd Frank paradigm that that regulation created. Um, one of the reasons that bank was, I think, taken was was captured by the FDIC was its willingness to do business with crypto. So the regime that is terrified of any kind of escape rafts from the problems that they have created and want to further tighten their control over that financial system, they're trying to deprive Americans of the security. Of a truly of a a different type of banking, and so what libertarians should want is for people like Caitlin Long to be successful. Mm. It is to allow for these banks to 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 offer new products, new security for customers. I mean, there's going to be some different costs there. You're probably you know you're not going to get a free checking account, or you know there's going to be some there's a different way of there's, there's there's extra costs with that. It's 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 not just simply taking one paradigm and simply translate it without the risk. That's not the way it works. But we need to allow those options open, and we also need to allow. The make it easier for people that are concerned about the long term value of their dollar um, concerned about the long term value of maybe that stock portfolio, which is not looking as good as it did a couple of years ago to be able to take money outside of this rig federal reserve system and place it an in alternative assets like gold, um, like Bitcoin, which has its own problems. I'm, I'm not trying to dismiss those either, but to create alternatives to the dollar for long term saving as the long term savings vehicle and ultimately we can do this I think some tax things can help with that eliminate capital gains taxes on gold and bitcoin would help on some of that sort of stuff but we have to fight back and prevent the regime from tightening their grip on this on fighting central bank digital currency should be an easy one for republicans we'll see if that happens but we need to create alternatives to get off this platform and allow the system in spite of the pain that's going to happen pain pain is a natural part recessions are the natural consequence of a financial bubble that's what cleans it it's 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 the it's the hangover after a, a drunken binge the night before right and it's a necessary part of the process we have to be ready for that and we need to we need to make sure that we have alternatives out there so that's the libertarian option is to create parallel institutions that people can pop opt into to get out of this rigged corporate state game
0: wow well that's the best i've heard it there's a lot of chatter on the twitter sphere about all this and a lot of people chiming in on their opinions but um that's always what at any anybody I know associated with you guys or even friends of mine that are just big supporters of yours everything they say makes sense right oh i like what you're saying that that there makes sense what what you know and then oh there's there's a Mises tie how about that well, I think well, that this is, is actually part of the problem yeah.
1: this this is, this is part of the way the the people in charge Try to uh, strengthen their control. They want you to believe that money is complex. They yeah. want you to believe that average people can't understand this. They try to mask themselves. Uh, Alan Greenspan was brilliant at this. He, would, he it was called Fed Speak. He'd go in front of Congress, in front of cameras, and he would, he would sound as, as opaque as possible with using a, you know, three syllable words and a one syllable word would do. And then you take transcripts from individual Fed meetings and see the way they talk amongst themselves. They don't sound the same way as they do. Uh, in front of Congress, they intentionally want people to feel like they can't understand this, this magic monetary policy, this very serious stuff. If you don't have a PhD and don't even bother trying to understand, just go along with it. They want you to feel it. Like you can't understand the economic environment and that's wrong.
0: Wow. I think too, you know, um, I mean, personal responsibility is just a, a huge principle and it. it's, it's everything from how we invest our money, uh, keeping ourselves in good physical shape, um, training our children, uh, what I would say as a Christian, training our children, in the nurture and mission of the Lord, really just taking responsibility of our children's discipleship and education—all these areas that, that it seems like we've subsidized out in our in our uh, convenient society. We want someone to educate our kids. We want someone to invest our money. We we you know we eat fast food, and you know it's just man. There's there's certain things that we're responsible for, and when we take responsibility for those things, everyone around us. Uh, is better for it and um, I think that's something that would be wise to to get back to as well and some of that comes with what I tell people is freedom is hard but it's our responsibility to educate ourselves right it's like you said the schools don't want people knowing this stuff they don't want people knowing this stuff because then then that would you know take down their house of cards so well I think this has uh, been a great uh, episode um, then we'll we've got a, a great uh, another segment coming up on how liberty-minded folks can fight back against the big corporate, big government uniparty. Um, but before we come to a close, uh, Tho, tell us where people can find you and more information on the Mises Institute.
1: Yeah. Well, you can find uh, the Mises Institute at M-I-S-E-S dot org. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, T-H-O-B-I-S-H-O-P. Good thing having a name, Tho, you, you can kind of take up all the social media platforms. You don't have a lot of competition there. Yeah. And also, if any of your audience is interested in learning more about economics or money and banking, um, I I wrote and directed um, two nine-part short, you know, three to four-minute long uh, each video series on this. One is Economics for Beginners, which you can find at begineconomics.com. It kind of goes through just the basics of economics, you know, price, cost, money, um, you know, socialism, capitalism, those sort of things. And also in terms of the banking issue in particular, uh, what has government done to our money.com? It's a nine-part series about the basis of money, banking, or uh, banking history, and the consequences of politicized money, which, again, is, is really, I think, the number one issue in the country right now. Wow.
0: That's good stuff. And last question, um, what is the etymology of your name, though? What is the what is the his- history there? What's the?
1: It, it's short for my parents are crazy.
0: Ah, there you go. I knew it. Yeah, it,
1: it it's a nickname. I, my, my, my Christian name is, is Norman Ray Bishop. Okay. Uh, Norman was my as a family name, and so when I was little, uh, my, my parents decided Tho was a good nickname. Various stories as to why that is, but uh, it's what I've always gone by. Uh, uh, it's apparently a very popular Vietnamese name. No, yeah. no connection at no all. No connection. On that. I'm seeing that. Um, but yeah. So, but yeah. THO.
0: I had to ask. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tho. Um, all right, guys. Well, until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.